0: This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Now, I'm not really in the habit of interviewing what we would call influencers, so to speak, that are out there in the Jewish world. However, every so often you meet someone who shares a personal story that is really, really inspiring and who's not just about life on social media, but is really an activist in the community and someone who accomplishes a great deal in our three-dimensional world. Alexandra or Alex Fletcher is just one such person. She has an extraordinary and fascinating life story, but she's doing so much today on the contemporary scene with respect to raising the profile of observant Jews to answering some of the noxious stereotypes that proliferate both online and in wider society, which is also a widely published author writing on important contemporary Jewish issues. So very excited to bring Alex to us today, a little bit of deviation from Israel-based coverage, but worth it nonetheless as a welcome, I wouldn't say diversion, but help us feel elevated and inspired during a difficult time. Meanwhile, as always a reminder to follow us on social media at juice you should know. Spell that fully on Instagram and Facebook, choose you should know with the letter U on Twitter. Follow or subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and so forth. Rate and review and please share the podcast with friends and family. And now to our conversation with Alexandra Fletcher We are here with Alex Fletcher She is the host of the DMC Deep Meaningful Podcast podcast. <laughs> there we go. Deep Meaningful Conversations podcast. There we go. There we go. <laughs> and uh, DMC. And she's also the uh, is proprietor of the Faces of Orthodoxy social media accounts. And she also has a remarkable and interesting personal life story. All of that we're going to get to, but how are you, Alex?
1: I'm good. Thank you so much, Ari Kretzky, for having me.
0: Great having you on. And uh, Alex is actually somebody I've known for quite a few years and like a more of a personal uh context and uh reconnected she came to speak on, on my campus uh one of my campus programs last year and uh but really been following her a bit from afar and watching all the amazing work which is so exciting uh, but it, of course it didn't emerge uh, in a vacuum it came from a whole background and a whole history that you have in your own life which is talk about orthodox it is quite unorthodox um so let's hear a little bit about that Alex where were you born what was your uh, early childhood like?
1: Sure. So I was born in Manhattan. Um, my parents actually are immigrants. My father's from England and my mom's South African, and my dad always had this like American dream that he wanted to move to America and you know, raise his child as an American. Um, but I think the question that they had is what religion would I be? Um, my mom in South Africa went to a convent. She, you know, while they were you know, South Africa, you know how it's like a little bit more traditional. So like they would have Friday night and like candles and they actually would go to an Orthodox shul where there was a mechitza, which is, sounds strange, but that's so much how South African Jewry was. Um, but on the other hand, her mother, my grandmother was like a self-hating Jew and a Scientologist. <laughs> so it's a little funny, although they were a little confused. So she ended up, you know, marrying this non-Jewish man. Um, And the most amazing part of the story, which I'm sure we'll get to, is how through his journey, his spiritual self-discovery, he brought my mother back to her Jewish roots. But my favorite story about, you know, when I was younger in terms of them deciding if, you know, I would be Jewish or raised as a Christian was um, I was sitting in my high chair. And this was in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. I must have been two years old. And my father did not know, you know, are we going to raise her as a Jew or a Christian? And the story that he tells us, he looked over and saw me. And he said, he looked into my brown, deep Jewish eyes, which were actually what he recognized my mother, the first time he met my mother, she was the first Jew he had ever met. And he calls out to my mom, she's Jewish. And my mother runs in the kitchen and she's like, what? I'm telling you she's Jewish. And my mother said, listen, I know that the religion goes through the mother so, okay, I guess you're right. He's like, I don't care about that. I know that she's she's going to be a Jewish person, a Jewish woman. And the truth is they didn't know what to do with that. You'd think like, okay, she's Jewish. So now we enroll her in a Jewish school or we get her educated. And, you know, we, can, we can, you can, you tell me when to stop. But that's a whole story of how they actually figured out, you know, that confusing piece for me in my childhood of like, what was I? So fine. They said, I'm Jewish. Fine. But what does that even mean? And what is that going to look like practically?
0: That's fascinating. So hey, I do want to get to that story. Um, but first, I want to get a little bit deeper into the earlier background, because I guess both of your parents, it sounds like we're South African. Um,
1: no, my father is British, actually. Oh, your they father's British. Okay. South Africa. And they yeah. met in
0: South Africa. What was he doing there?
1: So his brother lives in South Africa and convinced my father to come visit on vacation. South Africa is an extraordinary, beautiful, beautiful country. And my dad went to visit. And he met my mother at some party overlooking the ocean, you know. <laughs> uh, and it was this like amazing, you know, moment where he really connected to her. He explains that it was actually his Jewish soul that was connecting to her Jewish soul. They says she was the first Jew he ever met, and he he always said like the eyes are the window to the soul. We of course know in Judaism that that is the truth that the eyes are a window to the neshama. And he met her there, and and that was it. He. My mother, they started dating. My mother brought him home. Her father told her, I told you to never bring home a guy. Can you imagine? And she turned around to him and she's like, you put me in a convent for my education. What are you talking about? And he was this successful art director in London and advertising. And he clearly loved my mother. And they shrugged their shoulders and said, okay. And that they got buried by the justice of the peace. My mother told, it was just a government type of ceremony, totally, you know, not religious. And my mother said, on our 25th wedding anniversary, I want a proper wedding. Who knew what that even meant? And fast forward 25 years when my father converted in Atlanta, Georgia, and they needed to have a second wedding. Now, as my father is a Jew marrying his wife, that was on their 25th wedding anniversary. They had a proper Jewish wedding.
0: Wow. What a what a prescient, uh... Story. That's that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um uh, you said your grandmother, your maternal grandmother, she was Jewish, but she was a Scientologist. Where did that come yeah. from?
1: Oh my gosh. I'll, again, you know, like these Jews are just spiritual seekers and sometimes
0: they're part just hanging, of it. Hanging out with Tom Cruise, I guess, you know.
1: I know, right? <laughs> I, mean, I don't even know how she got into it. She used to like talk about her mashugana grandmother that would stick knives and forks into the backyard. I think that was some kind of like costuring something. I don't even know, but she had a lot of prejudices against Orthodox Jews. She passed those on to my mother, who so much so when we were joining the Atlanta Orthodox community, I was twelve, um, and my father started getting interesting and slot my mother along. She would be like, Oh, those Orthodox women are baby making machines. And she was a product of the 70s. So between that and her mother's, you know, um, negativity towards Jews and Orthodox Jews, she had a lot. Of stuff that she needed to get over in terms of breaking stereotypes, this is particularly about orthodox women, and she did because she met the most amazing woman who broke all those stereotypes for her. She started learning, and you know, slowly, slowly, she she ad- she was all in. But it was really, you know, the thought. My father, who was the one that opened the door, but my father told her when he wanted to convert, he's like, "We love each other. We have an amazing marriage. But I'm telling you, I have to do this. So either you're coming with me or you're not."
0: Wild. So it, it's interesting because I, I know that some of the work you do today also surrounds kind of that stereotype busting uh, kind of work. And and so it, it seems like sort of echoes of your mother's own journey.
1: Yeah, I, I do think so. And I think that's the whole point with stereotypes is they're stereotypes because we don't know the people and there's so much fear around people that we don't know. And that's what bias is all about. But once you actually sit down and meet the people that you have stereotypes about, And have conversations and learn about them and learn their stories like you immediately immediately see the humanity in people and you immediately learn that these are real people with real stories and journeys not just like some orthodox woman you know as my mother would say who was a baby making machine for example um she met women, my mother was a stylist in advertising that means she did set design and wardrobe for tv commercials and ads so she was very immersed in that world and Certainly had you know great appreciation. I mean, she dressed models and actors. That's what she did all day. So like, she always felt you know Orthodox women were slumpy and you know didn't care about how they looked. And then when she met Orthodox women who like were put together and beautiful, that that was also a huge stereotype breaker. And I think the lesson there is just like we have to be ourselves. You know, we don't even realize that just by like going to the supermarket and you know being who we are, someone could look at us and be like, oh interesting that person's orthodox that's not what i thought an orthodox person looks like or does
0: you know so absolutely so let's get back into the uh the story about your your own father's conversion and, and all of that so obviously there was some kind of a of a of an odyssey from this you know being married to a jewish woman who is you know sort of anti-traditional and and not engaged in her in her own religious you know, heritage and this non-jewish Is Goy, as your uh, grandfather said, uh, who was British and in South Africa and married to the first Jew he ever met. Yeah, how did that evolve into uh, to where they ended up that they had a 25th anniversary Jewish wedding?
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. So um, they decided to move to New York. Uh, My father, as I said, from his days actually as a young child during World War II, he lived in Dover, had always this like affinity um, with the American GIs. And as a young child, he knew he wanted to go to America. So they moved. And then when they figured out that I was Jewish, um, pr- probably about a year later, I moved down to Atlanta, Georgia. And it did not translate into actually what, how I would be educated. In fact, my mother took me to a Christian prep school, like St. Timothy's to enroll me in their, in their, in their preschool. And she said she walked into the doors of this institution and there was a huge crucifix on the wall. Okay. This is for my interview. And she just walked right out. So there were moments where her neshama, her soul was sort of like crying out like you, you did that. (laughs) You went to a convent. This is not for your child. Once even my father got nostalgic over Christmas and he's like, let's just go to church. And I remember this, like, I must've been in like fourth grade sitting in the pews of this church, like during mass. And my mother stood up and walked out, like couldn't do it. However, we had Christmas every year. I invited my Jewish friend Sarah Stein down the street to come decorate the Christmas tree. I saved the angel for her to put on top. Um, she in fact became religious. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> What's up Sarah? Later How on. I know Sarah. Shout out to Sarah. Um and then you know, we had Easter eggs and my mom made Passover seder, so we were this like and this is very normal you know in the secular world this multicultural family um but quote unquote I was Jewish however um to put me in a Jewish school Hebrew Academy this like community Jewish school in first grade my um the Hebrew teacher was this Israeli woman and went around the class asking everyone what their Hebrew name was and she came to me and I was like uh I don't have a Hebrew name so she gave me my Hebrew name this Israeli lady, my name was Kaya. She named me in that first grade classroom. And I started getting more connected. I came home, they gave us a challah for Shabbat. And I would talk about lighting candles and having the challah. I got my first sitter there. My mother came and decorated. We had a whole sitter party. And the truth is, you know, cognitive dissonance is very powerful. My parents saw me getting excited about Judaism and Shabbat. And they were like, well, we don't do that. So they pulled me out. <laughs> And I was doing well. They actually pulled me out. They're like, we are not living that life. Crazy. Wow, that's
0: a plot twist. I thought you said, so they started getting more connected.
1: <laughs> I know, right? They just wow. pulled me out and they stuck me in a very good public school. We lived in a very good like district in Atlanta, go to public schools. Um, and I, my father then on his own started his journey. But I will tell you before I get into that you know, it's so interesting, like as Orthodox Jews, and Jewish education, it's just so primary, we, we spend 10s of of dollars on tuition, we do whatever it takes to get making sure our kids have summer camp experiences, whatever it takes to give our kids a strong Jewish edu- education, and Jewish identity. And I, I remember, I remember in public school, I was in like fourth or fifth grade, they it was holiday time, and they made an announcement on the loudspeaker that um, it was Hanukkah that year first. And The Jewish kids should come to the office to pick up their Hanukkah, their holiday present. And I literally didn't know if I should go to the office to pick up a Hanukkah present or if I should wait until Christmas. I literally did not know if I was a Jewish or Christian. Can you imagine? (laughs) It's like, I remember my friends were like, Alex, no, no, you're Jewish. You should go get it. And I was like, I'm really not sure. And I ended up going to get the Hanukkah present first, but it's, it's sort of mind boggling that a child wouldn't really even know how they identify, right? Like in their religion. But um, I still, I think, was a pretty well-rounded child. <laughs> like, even though that was the case, like I, I didn't really know, but like went with the flow. And then when my father started getting more into Judaism, he, he actually went from what was it conservative to Reform. The Reform Rabbi he really liked. He actually um, studied with the Atlanta Scholars kolal which is in the Orthodox community. But my father wanted more, and he was like, oh. Him, you know is there a saturday shabbat services and they're like no we don't do that like no one comes, everyone's at the mall or at you know soccer games and he's like okay i know there's more to judaism than this and uh he started exploring chabad and he would sit in <laughs> he was the perfect student can you imagine he you could appreciate this as a rabbi he's, he's an educator he's sitting in these classes he's like lunch and learns with these chabad rabbis you know 12 people around the table and he, my father is very like passionate and a spiritual seeker and he's like, Rabbi, I don't understand. You are sharing the secrets of the universe in this room. Why are people not banging down the doors to come into your class? And he just soaked it up. They they never became Chabad, but Chabad actually was a, a very important entry point also for my mother. The rabbis in Chabad are, are so fashionable and put together. And that was very important for my mom in terms of breaking a lot of the stereotypes. Ultimately, he made his way to Beth Jacob. Uh, That's the main Orthodox show in Atlanta. He found out about it. Rabbi Emanuel Feldman, who's the founding rabbi of that community, was the
0: rabbi there. Been, been, on, the, was... been on the podcast, by the way.
1: Oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's an icon. And uh, this was in the early 90s. And he would park a few blocks down the road, you know, come into Shoal and just sit there. And he loved it. And he would come home and he, like, he'd say to my mother, you know, maybe just one night a week. We'll just like sit down and have a family meal together. And you know those candlesticks from your grandmother. Maybe just light them. It would be really, really nice. And my mother said, "I know what you're doing. <laughs> you want us to the, you know have a Shabbos." And he's like, "It just would be really nice." So, and we we started sort of doing that on our own. We didn't live in the community. Um. Very soon, my father was sort of like all in. He slept my mother along. We came to the shul um for Shabbos, you know, we drove <laughs> that that Atlanta's, you know, you can't park in the parking lot, but it's a very much a open key roof community. So there are people that drive to Shoal, you know, and, and they go. And um slowly but surely, you know, my mother started slowly warming up. My my favorite story I'll tell you about the challenges I think my mother had to overcome in terms of this journey is we went to a Seder. The whole community, you have to understand, like just open their, their homes to us. They invited us for Shabbos meals. I mean, that was so crucial because we were like learning about the community and learning about and learning about all these amazing people through these Shabbos invitations. It, it changed our life completely. But we got a Seder invitation. So we drive over to the Seder. And it's like, the man is sitting at the head with his stacks of Haggadahs to his right and his left. He's just slowly going through everyone. His wife is sitting next to him, falling asleep. And he, and this is how not to do Kiru. He's elbowing her to wake up. Okay. My mother is sitting there dying. And my father is sitting there eating the matzah, looking like a yeshiva about his eyes closed. So much kavana. He's like all into this. Okay. <laughs> Finally, you know, two, three in the morning, we get in the car to drive home. And my father says, "Beverly, and that's my mother's name." I had this spiritual experience eating the matzah. My mother's like looking at him with her gritted teeth, and sh- and he says, "I was eating the matzah, and it felt like the dust of Egypt in my mouth. I was, I was there." I was there leaving Egypt. And of course, we all, as you're listening to this story, hopefully their bells ringing. This is the ideal level of the experience of the Pesach Seder is that you yourself should feel that you yourself left Egypt. And he had these remarkable experiences the first time he did certain mitzvahs, like the first time they lit Shabbos candles. This was another one that his like soul like, plugged in immediately. He'd have these like remarkable, strong spiritual experiences the first time he observed things. Of course, it, it you know, it, it has faded ever since that. But this is one of these things and he's just going on about the spiritual experience with the matzah. My mother finally chimes in and she starts screaming at him. And I remember I, we were driving home. I was sitting in the back of the car. I'm an only child. And she's like, did you see that woman? She's the slave. He kept on waking her up. She kept on going to the kitchen. She just wants to go to sleep. And by the way, she threatens him, If you ever wear seats, I'm telling you now, I am divorcing you. <laughs> so we say, like my father this, My mother comforts her. She, she dresses modestly. Like she came around, but uh, that that was a memorable story.
0: What do you think precipitated your father's interest to begin with? Like what kind of sparked him? Mean, he obviously was, I would say, "quote unquote" complicit in pulling you out of Jewish school. So something must have happened to jar him to take an interest.
1: Yes. So they pulled me out when I was in first grade. When I was in fifth grade, my father actually had a near-death experience. Um, He had a burst appendix and pneumonia. He was in the hospital. The doctor said he was dying. My mother used to bring me to visit him in the hospital after school every day. Um, And that's his story to tell. And he himself actually speaks all over the country. He's given over his story, but Essentially, um, it was a real eye-opening moment for him. Um, His spiritual experience where he realized that his life was off-center in terms of the balance of physical material in the world. And he knew from then that he needed to change his life. Um, He does speak, and he always did speak, that he felt he had a Jewish soul. Um, So I think there was sort of like that event precipitated him exploring. He also was always a spiritual seeker. He actually was a, a, a Methodist late feature. He did the backpacking through Europe and and excuse me, backpacking through Eastern, hold on, the Middle East. I'm getting it wrong, the Middle East in his 20s. Like he was always a seeker. But I think that moment sort of pushed him to explore more. And you know the amazing thing about this story is I, I said earlier, like he always had this desire to come to America. When he converted, I was 12, I actually was a flower girl. I walked down the aisle. The whole community joined together. My parents actually had a second wedding where they, you know, had a band and and people gave all the families that opened up their homes and had us for Shabbos meals, gave my parents wedding gifts like, you know, a challah board or a habdala set, just like as if they were giving a new couple the things that they need to build their Jewish home. It was absolutely remarkable. But at his ofra, okay. Um, he tells a story that when he was a young child and when he first met these GIs, they'd be throwing these candies. They were lightsabers, colorful lightsabers off of the top of their Jeeps and all the British children who wartime children who hadn't had candy would be running after them. My father actually wrote this piece up for a Mishmecha magazine, this past piece up, and they would run after the Jeeps and say, got any gum chum, got any gum chum. And that was like this moment of him and connecting with these GIs and looking at them and they're, bright pearly smiles and thinking i want to be one of those people one day i want to go from to where my true identity who i am is is where these people come from and at its ofra before he knew it you know he said the bracha and they were all of these colorful candies flying over his head the red the yellow green they were sunkissed not lifesavers and um that was that full circle moment where he said you know what what he really wanted When he met the GIs, when he thought he wanted to find his true self in America, that actually came true. He was finding his true Jewish self, his true identity in America. And that was a very, very special moment for him.
0: That's incredible. sounds like your parents must have been a little bit older, both when they got married and when they had you, because I'm just crunching some numbers here. I know. If he was uh, around as a child to get those candies from the GIs, he must Uh already, you know, and then it sounds like their 25th anniversary, you were only 12, right? So yeah. Um, you know,
1: actually, it may have been the 20th anniversary. I need to get that straight. But my father converted. I know for a fact, he was 54 years old. He's 10 years older than my mom. So he wow. turned his life around. And that was one of the things that actually Rabbi Alan Feldman, who's Rabbi Emanuel Feldman's son, um, he had come to the pulpit. He took over when my father started really getting interested. And my father was the first person he converted. Now he's converted. Many Jews, m- people come to him often. But he, that was one of the things that puzzled him. He's like, listen, he's like, it's not like you're getting married and your Jewish mother-in-law is breathing down your neck to like convert. Like, why do you want this? You're 54 years old. You're, you know, you have a successful career in advertising. Like, why do you want to turn your life around? So it's pretty remarkable.
0: Wow. That must've, I don't want to say in a sense, put a little bit of pressure on you in terms of your own life, being an only child after many years of their marriage and marrying a little bit later to begin with. You know what was that like you know for you did you feel that growing up kind of a, a heaviness that you had to you know really live up to some kind of a standard
1: yeah it's really interesting I mean I, I feel like my parents were this success story ball tshuva success story if you will I was always part of this journey with them it never was like my father's converting and schlepping us all along and oh gosh I have to switch schools and I have to change my life I switched to a Jewish school toward so of Atlanta when I was in sixth grade. So, on one hand, that was actually helpful because it was pre the teenage years, pre the whole conservative reform bar about Mitzvah scene. So, I wasn't like enmeshed in that social scene. So, it wasn't really hard for me. And, you know, when I switched over, you have to understand, my par- I was in a top public school. My parents, I like was putting, you know, tried to put me into like a Catholic prep school. I mean, they switched me into Torrey School Atlanta, which was in a strip shopping center, like next to Tuesday morning. Okay. <laughs> You know, now it's a really solid, solid day school. It was a, you know, growing basic school in those days. And it just says so much to my parents, how they were like, so willing to even lower their standards to a certain extent. And what I mean by that is sometimes we do things as we believe in a, in a bigger goal and a larger vision. And we will make sacrifices because sacrifices are necessary for any, any goal and principle that we really believe in, because we cannot have it all. (laughs) We just can't. And um, I think one thing that one of the teachers did for me when I was switching over is she made this little, it was an English teacher. She's like, Oh, there's a new girl in the class or becoming religious made this little pizza party for me one night. And that that was so significant. I'll never forget it. I got to meet the girls in my new class. And it just made me really excited. And I never felt like, I'm doing this for my dad. I felt like my father put me on a journey of my own. Interestingly, I think as I got older, let's just say like post high school, that's when I needed to realize that like, I really, I need to I, I need to have a journey of my own that's in a sense separate than my father. I need to stop aligning myself or identifying myself as like the daughter of my father who converted, but I have my own real journey that I need to traverse. But um yeah.
0: So where, did that felt journey,
1: always connected.
0: so where did that journey, journey take you? Where, where did you start going? Um, after I guess high school and so forth. Yeah. Like you live, you went to a conventional Jewish high school in Atlanta yeah. and at that point, your family was religious. So where did, yeah. where did you then go?
1: Well, I'll step back if you don't mind, if I can tell you a little bit about high Please. school. So I went to a co-ed yeshiva high school and it was a fascinating thing because I had like FFB from, from birth goals in my class and it's a co-ed environment with kids who also are like conservative. It's just like a community kind of school run by Orthodox people. And my Orthodox friends, it was high school. So they're teenagers. So they're sort of exploring and they would be doing stuff that I was not comfortable with. And I feel like I was able to thrive in that environment because I was on my own journey. And I, I used to say like, oh, why would I do XYZ that these my friends were doing? That's like what not religious people do. I'm religious now. And having a journey and I always say this for parents of teens like teens have to take ownership of their own journey and their Judaism. And because they took ownership of mine and had goals for where I wanted to be, that really helped um, keep me on the path and didn't sway me to get me involved in stuff I shouldn't have been getting involved in. And you know, in this kind of environment, I remember standing up to go across the lunchroom to wash for hamotzi for bread was literally a walk of shame. We were called the orthodox mm-hmm. just by the fact that listen, we weren't dorks, but we were orthodox. So that already identified us as like being othered. And it took such strength of like character and conviction to be a, be uh, physically observant in this kind of environment. And um, once, I always felt like a little self-conscious about it. But once I, I remember I was walking through the cafeteria doors, rushing to go to a class and the other direction comes and the most popular boy in the school in my class and like slams into me, okay? <laughs> Running in the same direction and like, boom, I'm on the floor. And he ran up to me he's like, Alex, Alex, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I, of course, think he's apologizing to me because he ran into me and I fell on the floor. And then he, the next words out of his mouth were, I'm so sorry I touched you. And I was Shomer Nagia. I, you know, I hung out with friends who were bo- boys who were also Orthodox. We did NDSY together, but we were completely, you know, observant. And that moment, like, I realized like, oh my gosh. He, I'm actually respected for what I do, even though I look like such a freak, <laughs> you know, but I, this, I'm actually respected for keeping my principles. And that was really a huge moment for me. And basically throughout high school, like I was on this mission to improve my my skills. You know, I felt like I was at a disadvantage in terms of, you know, my reading and my translation and my, you know, and learning skills. And I went on a call at NCSY. Um, I was there where I really was able to focus on my learning um, to catch up. Uh, I was very involved in NCSY. I was on national board in 12th grade. I was, I think, a national NCSY of the year. Like, it just was, I was. Alex, I, me, I, I was me too. Own.
0: What year was that?
1: Yes. You know, I Absolutely. think we're in NCSY together. I do. I graduated high school in 98.
0: Okay, you were two years behind me. Oh. Um, but I was on national board in, in 96.
1: Uh, oh, that's so funny. Year.
0: not to you know like oh, wow. a little flex there but okay i know uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> i think my first job i was a pro- at, i got a master's in education my first job I actually put it on my resume i was like 21 years old i was it only happened a few years before i was very proud <laughs> you
0: want know, to hear something funny right right now just like a, a full circle moment is, yeah um there was, yeah, there was a woman who was the president on my board and she uh you know, whatever she, we obviously lost touch over the years, but then, uh, fast forward now and her daughter right now, as we're recording this, her daughter and my daughter are co counselors at, at their camp, uh, together in, uh, you know, in wow uh, camp Sternberg. So it's just really funny. how like, you know, life comes around and yeah, almost 30 years later, but
1: amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. So then I went to seminary, I went to dark which was like a real step up the boys in my class who were, you know, from Francis, why made fun of me that I'm going to come back with a black hat. (laughs) I definitely went to like the most like religious seminary. I don't want to call religious, I don't know. Left of beast, Yako, whatever you want to call it. Right. Which is just so ironic. It just
0: shows you how a relative everything is right, right in the world. People tell me, Oh, they're so religious. And like, you know, compare it. And sometimes people say, oh, they're so not religious. And I'll say, oh, you mean like they, they don't keep Shabbos? They don't do no, 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 no. I didn't mean right. like you know, people have such, you know, the, people are in such niche little areas exactly. in terms of their vision. It's funny.
1: Exa- my base of daughter did not apply to, uh, to dark evening because it's not base of enough. So like, there we go. Maybe that gives some perspective, but it's so true. And you know, I'm just like super motivated, like I love learning. Like, and uh, <laughs> we had this naomi, the girls, some girls would come in with like pajama pants or their skirts, and I'd be like, what are you doing? You know, I was really high on life. But I do remember like once in Ashir, and we had to read out loud, I think it was gur to the head of the, the seminary the rabbi, and he called on me and I read it perfectly. And he's he was shocked, and he's like, wow. Alex that was really good and I've sat there I'm like I made it like I caught up I did it you know like no one would know that you know when I was 13 years old I hardly could be Hebrew but look at me now um and after seminary I went to Stern College um I got a degree in English communications and really trying to figure out my life I wanted to teach I decided I wanted to teach my ideal would be to teach English because I am an English major plus um Judaic studies. So I got a master's and secondary Jewish education at Israeli, which is the YU uh graduate school. And I was very blessed. We lived in Baltimore at the same time. My first teaching job was in Baltimore at Beth a community school. I taught there my, for almost my alma years. mater. Oh, really? You went there?
0: Yes, yes, ma'am. Absolutely. Wow. K through twelve.
1: I didn't. Really? Oh, this is I'm interesting. Like... <laughs> so you know this school.
0: I know so it's so quite I well, yeah.
1: middle yeah. So I taught middle school and then high school. Um the middle school I was teaching English and Judaic Studies and then high school only lived Judaic Studies. And it's pretty amazing. Um that's sort of where I ended up.
0: Wild. So funny, you know, that, that that kind of a school, you know, it's such a small school, and it really leaves a, a major impression on you because it, it, the people you grow up with and you, know, you kind of marinate in that in that world for for years. Just yesterday, it's just in my mind now I was driving along. I was actually taking my daughter to go see July 4th fireworks. Uh, mm. We're recording this on July 5th. I'm sure we're releasing much later, but uh, so July 4th fireworks going out to DC and I see a license plate with a nickname on it. And I turned to my daughter and said, you know, what's so funny. A kid that I grew up with my whole life in Beth Tavilla, K through 12, that was his nickname in high school, you know, he's growing up and in high school. And then I saw a couple bumper stickers that kind of like gave me a sense that it could have actually been that person, but I haven't spoken to him in like 20 or 25 years and i said you know i'm gonna speed up a little bit and try to see who it is i zoomed up and it was actually that class old classmate of mine wow. who rolled down our window you know like hey what's up and, like, and then it's the t- like that's green, crazy. And, and that was it yeah you know, it's just wow it's just a you know crazy crazy world we live in uh, yeah but that was about uh, to fill a lot i grew up my class was 32 kids so it was you know a small group and um you know, you, many of them had, had been together the our entire lives. So, um, wow. yeah, Festival is a fascinating institution, which serves yeah. its, yeah. its own podcast, but, um, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, so you were in BT, you were teaching and then I guess at some point I know you, you know, you got married and that's what brought you to Baltimore, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So my husband, so I met my husband, um, actually a boy I went to high school with Yogi Robkin. I'll give him oh, a shout Yogi. out. I feel sure. like you also know Yogi. Yogi.
0: I know. Sure. We used to play tennis together and yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. So Yogi, we, he grew up in a very conservative, you know, really, uh, founding kind of conservative family in Atlanta, Georgia got involved in NCSY. And then we were, you know, we would all go roller skating together in NCSY. Like we were our little hubra. He's the one who told me I would have a black hat when I came back from seminary. So he ended up. Joke's on Nary him because Str- he's the one who came out I the, know. The black <laughs> I know. Um, so he ended up in Strahl, where my husband, who is a Balchuba also, also, Although finally, I don't like, it's weird. I don't consider myself a Balchuba, which is strange because I am, but I guess like I, I went so much through the system, you know what I mean? I went to seminary, like I, you know, I went to Stern. I don't know. It's funny. I I, I don't even consider myself, but anyway, so he like had a Shabbos meal with my husband at Mary Stroll and then called me and I was like, Yogi Ravkin, I don't talk to boys anymore. Like, why is he calling me? It's like I I had a meal with this this guy. I think that, you know, I, I think this might be a shit up for you. Yogi since has made like, I don't know, maybe even hundreds at this point of should of matches. Like he's, but we were his first. And uh I remember even in Baltimore
0: up- when they were just married, he would like yeah. he, they would they have like he had like designated hours. I forgot about this. They would have like designated yeah. hours where the people would come meet them like single, would come meet them at their apartment and I think it was a Downton View. And yes. uh Right? We and took they were,
1: over their, their apartment, actually. They, oh my gosh. We lived in there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> And they moved yeah. to Dallas, right? So, yeah, yep. so that, that, I I had not thought about that in so many years, but that's yeah. really funny that, yes, I remember they did a lot of matchmaking and uh, did not know you were yeah. first, uh, the first I was there notch of their belt. And,
1: and it's like sort of convenient with someone who knows you that you went to high school with, you know, <laughs> things of your shit. Up. So... Um, we moved to Baltimore. My husband was learning there in the COLA. I don't think that was on my agenda to be a COLA wife. It wasn't like something I was aspiring to do. But I mean, as you can see, I'm pretty idealistic. Like I was all in. Um, and, you know, when you think of COLA, you think you need support. I just want to say our rent. What was our rent in cross-country apartments in those days? I think it was like went up from like 500
0: to 690. Mine, we mine, was four, there. mine was 465. A oh, wow. Years,
1: well, right there. Well, cool. <laughs> Um, and you know, I was, I was teaching full time. We did it. We did it on our own, um, for five years. And my husband decided, I think year three after our second child was born that he, he was going down the like community rabbi track. He substituted at Bethlehem a few times, but he was sort of exploring education and and the rabbinette. And then he decided uh, through a mentor that had a long talk with him that um, he didn't want to do any of that anymore. He thought he should do something else and maybe medical school.
0: <laughs> one is Jewish.
1: I guess so. Um, so that became a whole new route where it's like, okay, you dropped out of college. He went to a prestigious college, Amherst College, dropped out to like go study a year abroad in Israel, it up in a kibbutz, where they were having pork roasts on Yom Kippur, which then made him realize that he should explore his Judaism more and ended up in Orsameh and learned in Israel for years. Came back to Neri Yisrael and then after a number of years learning, where by the way, when I asked Yogi, is he a Shuva? Because I was curious. He said, oh no, no, he's not a Balchuba. He was in the top shear in Neri Yisrael and people did not know that only like three years before he did not speak, he could not read and read Hebrew. It's just wow. remarkable. So, um, so then he decides to go to medical school, but like, what does he have to show for it? He gets his bachelor's in Talmudic law. And this is what many people do. You get the BTL, you take your prereqs. He took all his pre, you know, science and, you know, whatever prereqs he needed. And at his inter medical school interviews, one woman, one program director stood up when he walked in the room and said, you were the first rabbi who was applied to our medical school program. <laughs> and when they asked, well, I see you went to Amherst College, very nice, but you didn't graduate. Oh yeah, I decided to to change careers. <laughs> I decided to go to rabbinical school instead. You know, there's always a way to put these things. So after supporting my husband for five years in coal then I became the medical school wife, and I need to continue to support him. He went to University of Maryland Medical School. All this time, I'm teaching at Bethsaida, thanks to my salary and medical and student loans, which you can get to help you know living expenses, loans, and all of that fun stuff. And then we ended up in Cleveland for um, residency. So came here. Um, I think you talk about Beth the is a very unique institution. It was sort of hard for me to tr- like transfer where would I teach when I came here. So I ended up there was an opening at the most right wing base Acove school here, not for the Muse Kodesh. They would not hire me for doing study. <laughs> but for english and it happens to have been like really my most fulfilling years teaching i just absolutely loved it um and i slowly started getting into writing and right now i'm not teaching (laughs) i I love teaching it's a whole nother discussion because i'm actually really passionate about education i have a opinion column in mr magazine that i write for occasionally and i wrote um, two years ago really before there was a lot of discussion about the teacher shortage. And I am an example of why there's a teacher shortage because I left. <laughs> I didn't want to grade at night, wasn't getting paid very much, and it just got too challenging. But nonetheless, um, you know, I love teaching, but I did leave and I started writing a little bit. Um, writing for some like blogs that I had always read about, you know, cross-currents, probably. it's like Adlerstein writes about like Jewish communal issues. Like I always, I was the kid that was like reading the Jewish Observer front to back, you know. Um, and just slowly started writing, and then um, I I remember like pitching to Mishpacha, saying like I yeah you know, I, I at that point I, I had somewhat of a name recognition, or you know a little bit of name re- re- recognition, and I I wanted I felt that it was very important to have a, a female voice in the main magazine in the opinion section um, because I think you know they do an amazing job with the family first magazine for women, and they do an amazing job addressing communal issues there too. But I felt that, you know, in the main magazine, there should be an a, a orthodox female voice. And, um, you know, I, I got a column there, which was amazing. How I'm did really you end that? Was,
0: was there any resistance to that? How did you? Okay, pretend? so it's really
1: interesting. I needed to send some, you know, samples of work that I had done, which I did. And the, I think what happened was sort of in the beginning, there was this feeling of like, you know, our readers are going to have to learn to trust you because in the from world, you have a certain clout because you're a rabbi, you're a Rebetzin. I wasn't, I'm a writer, you know, I'm not married to a rabbi. I'm not a Rebetzin, although my husband does smicha. but you know what I mean? Um, you know, I, I was just, and if you can imagine in any secular paper, you have opinion writers, they're writers and, and they gain the trust of their audience just by being good writers or because people agree with the words that they're saying from worlds, it works a little bit differently. And there was a little bit of pushback when my first piece came out. You have to understand like, this is right in the beginning of the magazine. This is with like esteemed and venerable writers, Aitan Cobry, Jonathan Rosenblum, and then Alexandra Fletcher, who is that, <laughs> you know? And there was a little bit of, a bit of some reader pushback and right in the beginning, like who is she to say that, you know, H- who are you? Um, what gives you the right to make these observations or, um, you know, share these opinions? And I just think, um, you know, over the years, I've been writing there for almost five years now. uh, Over the years, I think, you know, you just have to gain, gain a trust with your readership and you see from letters they write or, you know, that people agree or they disagree, whatever it is. But I think over time, um, you know, I, I, I believe I was able to, you know, create, create that kind of. Kind of trust, but yeah, it was it was was, it's been an amazing experience, and I so value. I don't write enough for them. I'm very busy with these orthodoxy, my podcast, which we could talk about. But it's a huge platform. It's just so special to start conversations around people's shabbat tables, you know, and then get those letters back and see that, like, you know, you're you're actually making some kind of difference in that orthodox communal conversation.
0: Incredible. So now, obviously, all all along this time, and certainly the last five ten years. 10 years or so social media really began to uh explode and you entered the fray so to speak and yeah and uh you know her, your for good or bad <laughs> added your voice there you know Mishpacha is very you know traditional brick and mortar you know jewish publishing magazine it's kind of a you know an up- updated version of that but it, at the end of the day it has very uh you know clear roots in the jewish publishing world social media is a whole new whole new chapter and with a whole different kind of audience, um, probably as well, how did you end up making your, you know, your voice known there and, and, and what did you decide to begin to champion, you know, on those platforms?
1: Yeah, well, social media, I entered it pretty late. I'm sort of the type that like will resist the fads until I like, oh gosh, finally have to join. I think my mother convinced me you should check out Facebook. They're like your friends from high school are posting pictures. And that's literally how I got on it. Um, and then I, as a writer, Facebook is really helpful because you could share links to your articles. There has been over the years, a lot of discussion about the algorithm and how it doesn't benefit writers uh, limits sharing external links, you know, limits exposure. But, you know, in those beginning days, when I was writing for cross currents in times of Israel on the forward, you know, you could share a link and now your audience is so much bigger. Same with Mishpacha, by the way, they have a fabulous website. And I always was share by articles that were in print, um, on, on social media platforms, and I continue to do so. So that's great. Um, and I guess, you know, being that kind of person that cares about communal issues, face all of these platforms are just great ways to have conversations. And I think that's sort of where it started. Um, I don't know, I just, I just deleted my Twitter. I deleted this now. <laughs> Love, hate relationship with social media, that's for sure. Um, but I guess that sort of leads into the work that I do now. Well the truth is I guess we should talk about my unorthodox life cuz that that that's sort of where things exploded.
0: Okay, let us get into it. I, mean, I you know, I know from uh from your old story that that I'm familiar with basically my unorthodox life was this sort of reality show exposé by a woman currently named Julia Hart um at excuse me, she uh I guess spoiler alert was someone you knew in your time yeah. in in Atlanta uh, as one of your teachers. And uh, is, maybe that's, that was sort of an entry entry way for you to start sharing a different perspective on Orthodox Judaism than was being portrayed on her show. Is that a fair uh, synopsis?
1: That's exactly what happened up until that point. You know, I'm not an influencer. Whatever I'm sharing, I'm sharing in terms of my work or just having conversations on social media. But what happened was, yes, so Julia Hart was my teacher. Um, Her name in those days in Atlanta, she was in her early 20s. Her name was Talia Hedler. Brilliant, brilliant woman, BJJ graduate, came into class first day you know, designer top to bottom move from Muncie and we're like, who is this person? Like we're not used to people, you know, women that look like this, you know, her into fashion so much and designer and all of that. And like already from, you know, in those years, that was who she was, you know, certainly very, you know, immersed in that kind of world. And, um, she was like one of my first role models in terms of like really a strong Orthodox Jewish woman, um, brilliant photographic memory, very strong in terms of her educational approaches, Jewish approaches. Like she told us we couldn't have slits in our skirts or go to movies. And we were like these co-ed, you should you know, go Jewish high school going, you know, going to NCSY going, you know, we were like, what's going on here. Um, but basically she made my shavar brachos. Actually, we were, we were close. We were close last touch. And then I saw, We I heard that she had stopped being religious and honestly, my heart goes out to her and my heart goes out to anyone. Um, I know that like she i she she had got into into shoe design, and I was like, okay, like I, I you know, I, I see maybe she always had this attraction for that world, and maybe that was part of her story that that she really just wanted to be part of that and felt like she couldn't be that as an orthodox woman. I don't know, but not judgment. just like i you know, my heart went out to her. and then I saw that she um she posted on her Instagram that she was you know, starting to promote this new show that she was going to be releasing like six months down the line. So I messaged her on Instagram, hey, it's Alex Beard. Remember me. Of course, Alex, how are you? It's so nice to you each out. You know, I'm wishing her well with her new show. As the publicity came out, I was reading everything I could about the show. And I saw very, very quickly that um it was promoting a lot of stereotypes and negative information and untruths about orthodox Judaism and orthodox woman. And, um, I, and when the, sh- and in like the few days and weeks before the release, this is 2021, I was already thinking like I had moved more into like the chizuk field, I guess you should say. Um, in my writing, I'm like giving his orthodox community. I I was a co-founder of the Cleveland Chizuk retreat for orthodox women. It's a retreat, a learning retreat and sort of like a getaway for orthodox women. So I'll, I really care about the orthodox community. So like Looking at this show and what it was doing, I was concerned for not the outside world. I'm not even thinking that. I was just thinking about like us, or our teenage girls, or women who would watch this and hear things degrading us, fundamentalist Orthodox women who are baby making machines, as she says, and who don't. I read. Her, I read an interview in the New York Times. She said, "Don't have, don't get an education past 16 years old. Like, don't ride bikes. Like, complete lies." Okay. What, what's that going to do for us? So I was like, you know what? As I said, I'm no influencer, but maybe we can utilize social media. And I wrote up this sort of Google Doc with some key points to this campaign that I thought maybe people can just jump on board. You know, these viral things, like what are the odds of something going viral? You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like, let's just, let's just try. And, you know, basically the idea is the goal is for us men and women, and it only have to be women to showcase our lives as Orthodox Jews um, a slice and slice of life, you know, slice in the daily life of any of us, you know, we could discuss our challenge. We could discuss what we love about it. We could discuss how we break stereotypes, put a picture of yourself, your little story, hashtag my orthodox life. And, um, I wrote, did this post the day it was released. The show was released season one, episode one. I shared it with a couple of influencers cause they can help. <laughs> can you share this too? They shared it and it was like literally lighting a match. It just blew up wildfire. For the next week, I'm embarrassed to say I was like glued to my phone (laughs) Um, and women just started posting, sharing pictures of themselves, sharing their stories, hashtag my orthodox life. Women who were lurkers on social media or never put their pictures were like, I'm all in. And basically what happened is you have this community of Orthodox women worldwide who were extremely triggered by the show and frustrated and had this energy and wanted to share and wanted to have a platform to express themselves, but didn't know how. So we gave them that platform. And it was a crazy week. I USA Today interviewed me with Julie Hart, not on the same phone, but the art had an article interviewing me and her. Apparently she was not happy, thought that that article was biased and leaning with, you know, sympathetically to us over her. We became the orthodox response to the show. Um, There was tremendous media coverage. um, And there are now almost over 3000 posts, on Instagram with this hashtag, my orthodox life, if you scroll through them, you see this diversity of orthodox women who all are identifying as orthodoxy and all t- telling their varied stories. I think one of the coolest parts about this is how I wasn't even on LinkedIn, how it exploded on LinkedIn. And there are a lot of Hasidish women, Yeshivish women on that platform there for their businesses. And when you're on LinkedIn, you've got all of your secular professional contacts. So yes, the world was reading this and they were getting a different narrative about who we are from individuals telling their stories. I have no problem with Julia Hart telling her story. Everyone has a right to tell their story. The problem I had and have with the show is she's her, her message that her story is our story. Her message of I'm leaving this and I'm throwing a match behind me and burning the building down the generalizations and statements and tropes that she says about Orthodox is just simply, This became a matter of misrepresentation and you know, we were being misrepresented as Orthodox women in the media. And this was how we could fight back is through social media and our own, and our own posts.
0: Really fascinating. I mean, did you ever hear back from her at at some point saying, Hey, what are you doing? Or you're, you're, you're messing with my show.
1: Yeah, (laughs) I I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do that. My husband told me like, for sure, don't get involved. You know, there's all legal mess I'm sure. But I had people reaching out to me from the Atlanta community. You know, she was teaching women um, and women's learning programs. I had rabbits who were like very, upset and sad who, who wanted to talk and process with me. It was, you know, it was hard for those, those people who knew her and, and, you know, grew up in Atlanta and saw, you know, saw her differently than the way she was portraying how she lived in those years. She, you know, her husband was a lawyer. She read magazines. She was like, you know, a little bit more with it than the, you know, cloistered woman who had zero exposure that she, she, you know, uh, portrayed herself to be.
0: So now that, obviously that show itself and, the you know, like, like any show or media product, you know, kind of has its, has its moment and then it burns, it burns yeah. itself out. So, you know, you yep. don't hear much about that anymore. Um, at least I don't, um, no, so, you don't,
1: it was literally two weeks long to just so viral moments don't last more than that. Right.
0: So, on so on where, did that kind of, where did that kind of leave you? I mean, that could have just been a one, a one and done sort of a quick, you know, flash in the pan, but it seems like you've continued to have sort of a presence on social media and, and continue yes. Yeah. Um, this, I guess, movement, if you want to call it that. What was that all about in that regard?
1: So what happened was very soon on, like the first few days, the OU, the Orthodox Union, reached out to me. Uh, Rabbi Moshe Howard, who's the executive director, he actually was our Rav way back in Baltimore, uh, Benin Jacob Shari Zayan. Um, And he knew me, of course, and he wanted to support the efforts of my Orthodox life. So he felt there was value added. Um, he, I worked with the OU and their PR team to put articles out in the secular media written by Orthodox women to provide a counter narrative and they were super supportive and it was really wonderful to have sort of like an institutional backing there. And then, you know, once the whole thing died down, um, Rabbi Howard Moish Bain, um, who was the president at the time you know, we realize that this is just the beginning. We're done with the show, even though there was a season two, like we're done, you know, like there's only so much. But what we have learned from the experience is that we need to be telling our stories as Orthodox Jews. Um, and how are we gonna do that? We're not, propo- you know, we're not saying that we need a Netflix show about us. Happens to be Jewish matchmaking. I think, uh, you know, having a Orthodox woman up there on on the screen on Netflix is pretty remarkable who's a wonderful example of an Orthodox woman, but we're not necessarily saying that we need that. Um, But we have a very powerful tool at our disposal and that's social media. So um, the Orthodox, the OU basically said, next step is we would love to have you on board to create some kind of social media campaign that tells the story of Orthodox shoes. And it's been a tremendous privilege to be able to work with amazing creative professionals um, to create what we have now. It started um, a year ago, April called Faces of Orthodoxy. Uh, we are on; it's designed for Instagram, but we're also on Facebook, and I share it on LinkedIn under my personal page, Alexandra Fluxer. Uh, and basically, what it is, it's a, it's an account that shares the the human stories of Orthodox Jews with the goal to put a human face on religious Jews, and we do that through beautiful portrait style photography. We hire the best photographers. Um, we hire Orthodox Jewish photographers who are passionate about this project. Each season is located in a different city. So it's sort of regional um, based on the season. And we t- we choose, you know, eight to 10 subjects per location. Right now, we're just finishing up the Atlanta season because I wanted to go back to my roots. So featuring some really interesting, colorful Orthodox Jews to just to tell our story.
0: And it's not only women, right? At this point.
1: Oh, men and women. Yeah, men and women you know, the idea our target, we have two target on audiences. One is certainly the secular world, the non, you know, non-religious and the non-Jewish world to expose them to the diversity amongst us. So often people who aren't exposed to Orthodox Jews, they think they're all Hasidic, you know, and we're really highlighting people of all professions, ages, ethnicities, religious backgrounds, as we're trying to get as diverse as we can to show the world who we are, that we share universal struggles, we're humans, but we also um, have triumphs. And we we don't shy away if someone wants to share any kind of vulnerability, we want them to show that. Um, and certainly what's happened is our second target audience is certainly Orthodox Jews, because like I said, with my Orthodox life, we're sort of all at risk when we are watching ourselves being so negatively portrayed in the media, that also can impact us. And what's happened with this is, is, we have so many Orthodox Jews that are just so engaged. We've created this beautiful community of people who are, are just so, it's almost like a pride, you know, campaign in a sense that are just loving. We, every week we post a new subject. I do the, I find the subjects, I interview them. They're, they're They take the whole week. We have part, part one of their story on Monday, part two on Tuesday. We have reels. We have a lot of fun, interactive content they provide their personal photos too. So in addition to the professional professional shots, you see their life story from, you know, when their children are still present. And people are just coming back for more and just cheering on subjects, you know, cheering on when, you know, uh, overcoming challenges, all different things. And it's been such, so, I thought this was going to get hijacked because I know what happened with my Orthodox life. There were a lot of haters. <laughs> You're showing that we're all perfect. What's going on? You should let, you should let OTT people who have left the path tell their stories, give them a break. And there's a lot, a lot of haters. And this, I was like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? And it has been such a positive space. It's been just such a privilege for me to learn about all these amazing people and interview them and and profile them and give them the spotlight. We're not like showing off celebrities. We're showing off like regular people in our midst and our communities.
0: So that's what we continue to do. How are you identifying who to, uh, to feature?
1: So often, um, I do look for, for certain like professions. So, for example, like right now, we're actually starting our our first shoot today in South Florida um, for our next season. And like one of the stories I wanted to tell is perspective of, of a real estate agent. South Florida just got vouchers. Um, real, you know, things are bo- booming. <laughs> so I'm like, how cool? Let's get an orthodox person who's a real estate. So that that's easy. I I have this is where I use social media. I have a huge network on social media. Hey, guys, nominations are open for the next season of Face of Orthodoxy. I do that on LinkedIn, Facebook. People love it. They're like, you know, sharing links and sharing, you know, people they think would be great. Um, so sometimes it's based on profession. Sometimes it's based on the type of story I wanted to tell. Like I want to represent someone who has a child with special needs. So I'm looking for a mother who's like an advocate, you know, who can talk about that. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm always on the lookout, I've got tons of different criteria. They don't have to be like superstars. They just have to be able to be willing to share their journey of how they, their religious journey, their personal journey, and you know, professional journey.
0: Now, does, you mentioned criticism because um, any, any meaningful project is not being criticized, then you're probably not making an impact, right? So do you ever get, Accused of whitewashing or of you know portraying this you know like you said this perfect uh, scenario or you know and, and things like that and for people either people that have you know left the fold so to speak or just people that are within the fold but would like to see more of an emphasis on areas for improvement.
1: Okay, so we must not be doing a good job, and I've had this question before because I'm really not getting that. I'm really not getting that pushback. We have we're just like any day now hitting 10,000 followers which is pretty strong for a jewish social media account i'll I'll sometimes get like missionaries randomly like jc stuff <laughs> posted here and there we have not gotten pushback from the jewish community we hardly get any pushback now it could be it's because this is me. So they know me already and they already give me pushback back in my orthodox life. They're like, Oh, there's Alex doing her thing again, you know, <laughs> like leave, we'll leave her alone this time. I don't know. <laughs>
0: well, it and might also pretty, just be because you're, you're, you're focusing or you're highlighting individuals and their yeah. unique journeys instead of you're not attacking issues, so to speak. Uh, I think so. You know, you're just promoting individual stories and, and it's a little bit more difficult to, you know, to impeach those kinds of messages.
1: I think that's very true. It's a storytelling account. So you're going to go on there and like say something to insult the person that we're featuring in their journey. That's like, it's very personal, you know what I mean? And I don't, I, you're right. It's not issue beats. It's more, it's really, there's so much, uh, there's more humanity, I think in the account um, due to the very nature of the account. Yeah.
0: Now tell me a little bit about the podcast.
1: So I'm a co-host of the podcast, The Meaningful Conversation. This happened before my Orthodox life. Um, and before Faces of Orthodoxy. So now I'm like professionally and like a really great space, honestly. I don't have to schlep out to school or go to classroom. I work from home. I get to talk to amazing people for Faces of Orthodoxy, all from the comfort of my living room, as well as DMC, as well as the subjects that we interview. So like between these two major projects and my writing, I keep busy all day long. But DMC started really as a passion project during COVID. My co-host, Rifty Silver, she lives here in Cleveland. She's just like a 10-minute drive away. And I think this was like right when our kids started going back to school, you know, like in masks era. And we wanted to basically provide a podcast for Orthodox women. There really wasn't a lot out there where um, we started off with called Normal for a Woman which we thought we were being cute and funny. But then when we rebranded, <laughs> we normal is a very, very loaded, loaded term. So we're like, you know, let's just leave it alone. DMC, um, basically we start off the podcast just you're listening to a DMC with friends. And that's the feedback we get. If people tell us, we feel like we're like sitting and having coffee with best friends. We're not solely an interview-based podcast. Rifki and I will take a topic. Um, we just, let's say, uh, we just did an interview about prayer um with sarah blau let's say and but the first third of the podcast is me and rifki talking about our challenges our struggles our tips just us schmoozing about it and i think that's what our follow- our, our listeners really appreciate just having to that's why we call ourselves normal for a moment we're, we're not revisions we're just like regular ladies talking about any issue that like is relevant to us and those are the topics that we come up with. It's like, what do we want to learn more about? What, what's something that we wish we was about with our friends' job this afternoon? And then, of course, you bring on the expert, the Revitan, the therapist, you know, whatever, the author, and we get to pick their minds. So we learn so much about it. And Baruch Hashem, you know, we've meeted, met with wonderful success when we have a new episode where um, that's launched. We're, you know, normally six or seven on the Apple Judaism podcast chart. We're so grateful. And it's, just, I think, I think both of us, she Rifky writes her family first. And I had a repetition of Mishbacha. And I think that's definitely part of our success is we were names that people recognize. And I just, I love it. I, I never see myself stopping. I, I really love it.
0: How often do you p- publish an episode?
1: So we publish every two weeks. What about you?
0: Good question. <laughs> it's supposed to be, uh, it started out weekly. And um, at this point, it's it's less frequent simply just because I'm doing it all myself. Yeah. And uh, it, like you said, it's a passion project uh, yeah. for me as well. So yeah, it, not as frequent as I would like. Um, yeah. It's a lot of work you know, to get the guests it's a lot to of work. do the interviews, yeah. editing, releasing, writing the notes, all that stuff. So, And you do uh, that all yourself. I do it all myself. Yeah.
1: Wow. So Riffie is super techie. I'm so blessed and I am not. So she takes care of all the editing and the technical piece. She's actually a musician. So she wrote oh, wow. and, and recorded the music on our podcast. I do the behind the scene or the behind the scenes, the script, and all of that part. Yeah, we actually have advertising now too, so it's not just a passion project, um, which we're very grateful for. So, and it's yeah, a very ne- it's fun. a very
0: niche product, so I think it would be a, a tra- attractive to advertisers.
1: It is. This is well. This is a, a female podcast. You want to advertise your labels for camps. You want to advertise your appliances for your kitchen. You an upcoming event here for women. Like the it, yeah. This is it.
0: On, fan, the <laughs> fantastic. what uh what what's been like the most interesting or exciting episode that you've uh put out i hate when people ask me that question by the way but yeah i'm gonna ask it to you anyway <laughs> sure
1: i'll tell you there was i'm um, your friends you may know her with leslie Ginsburg, dr leslie Ginsburg. Blind, she baltimore, lives in baltimore yeah. she has a phd about the history of Jewish women's education in America, specifically the Basiakov movement and how that translated Schneer's legacy to, you know, in America. We really try to give a variety of topics, self-help, marriage, parenting, you know, um, social sciences, all different things. But having Leslie on, I think, was a little bit of a risk because we are like, okay, you know, we will have, prof- we've had professors, but like psychology professors who so will talk about grit, you know, or burnout. But we never had anyone talking about history or any kind of academia. Now, I'm a huge fan of Leslie. So I'm like, we have to have Leslie because Leslie takes her her academic background and makes it so, as they say, La so practical, you know, with messaging for Orthodox women and Jewish women about, you know, leadership through the legacy of Sarsher. So I knew that it would be that way. And and we, we, our title of it, I don't remember the legacy of Sarsher for 21st century women. I, I don't remember what it was. But it was like, I, that episode to me was, I think, the most exciting because we knew we were taking a risk and we weren't sure how it would be received because it was different than what we had done in the past, but everyone loved it. And she was fabulous as always.
0: Amazing. Are there any topics that have like triggered a lot of uh, interest or made people really think or push back or you know, topics that you feel like, wow, we really hit a nerve here?
1: Yeah. So a few months ago, um, Ruchi Koval as a momentum leader she's she lives here in cleveland, cleveland which is awesome yeah we love when we have like we they're amazing women in cleveland so they get just to come sit around my dining room table and we can do the episode recording versus on zoom we love it so ruffy um she's also a parenting coach and she has um a very beautiful family a very diverse family seven children a number of them are not religious and she has so much to say about parenting So we decided to do an episode with her about like the things you never learned in parenting class or sorry, what's missing from parenting classes. And that did so well, because we like to take a little bit of like a fresh approach. We don't just want like cliche parenting episode. Like we want to talk about someone in the trenches who is a parenting coach, who has, you know, adult children and children, like on all levels of observance, some not observant at all to like, tell us your wisdom, like, what have you learned? What is not talked about enough. And she is incredibly articulate. She could talk about anything and she's just gonna get to the top of the charts because of who she is. But that really, really resonated with our listeners that episode.
0: Alex, uh, any other projects on the horizon for you? You know, whether it's social media or otherwise or writing, maybe maybe a book in the, a book in the in the offing possibly or
1: I don't know. So I am just super excited that I am in the middle of editing a piece in Mishpacha right now, I haven't written for them in six months. <laughs> so after this podcast, I need to go and respond to my editor. So I really, really want to continue my writing. I find I'm a, I have five children, you know, like my day has to sort of end when the kids come home, you know, from school, so I could somewhat be attentive. And I have a, I'm juggling a lot of projects with deadlines. You know, we produce content daily for Faces of Orthodoxy, and it hasn't stopped week after week after week. Uh, we have like over 50 faces that we've that we've profiled. So but the writing to me is something I'm just so grateful and passionate about to have that audience. And I, I really feel like I need to commit myself to to, to continuing that. I don't know, we want to like make a coffee table book of Faces of Orthodoxy. I think that would be amazing. I would love to try to get this content out for people who are not on social media. And I think there's a lot of potential for this project. And Please, God, it should be, you know, content, have continued success and open up more projects and more opportunities, um, you know, through the work that we're doing.
0: Beautiful. Thank you. Alex Fletcher, the host of Deep Meaningful Conversations, the podcast, the proprietor or leader of Creative Director. Creative, creative director. director. I was looking for that right <laughs> term and I needed a creative director to give me the term right. creative director. The creative director of Faces of Orthodoxy, a writer uh speaker dare i say an influencer even if uh you don't <laughs> love the term but thank you so much for joining us
1: thank you so much arcret it was great talking to you
0: This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that, and you can do so by visiting... Patreon.com. That's P A T R E O N.com slash Jews you should know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.